following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. As we come to meditate on this text of Scripture night, let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever been publicly humiliated before? In 1796, Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers, published the pamphlet entitled Concerning Observations on Certain Documents. This pamphlet that he published detailed a bunch of letters that he had written to his mistress and to the husband of his mistress detailing an adulterous relationship he had. And this went to the press. And he had done so because some other people had found out about this news and had sullied his political relationship. And the only hope he had of saving his political career was to get the facts straight and confess all his sin before the public so that they might know what the truth was and that he might still be able to put forth his financial plan for the nation. Now, since we're not here in D.C., I'm assuming not many of you are politicians and have to publicly confess your sin in order to have some political legacy. But there is a kingdom a greater kingdom that we all must reckon with. And there is a king, a great king, that we must all bow the knee to. And if we are not received into that kingdom, we have no hope of any eternal legacy. That kingdom is the kingdom of God, and that king is Christ Jesus. And the only way that we'll have any acceptance into that kingdom is through humble faith and confession of our sin. In our today's text, we have an example of that humble faith which our Savior requires of us in order to have salvation in Christ's kingdom. Before we look at our particular text, let's consider what Mark's doing in general. Mark has written an entire book with a single focus in mind. Mark wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's done this by detailing many events from the life of Christ. And in these events, he's proving the deity of Christ. But he's not done so so that you might have some cool trivia facts for the next trivia night. No, Mark wants you not to walk away with a bunch of information, but with faith in Christ. And here we have an example of that faith he desires you to have in Jesus Christ. What we see from our text is that we are humbly to trust in Christ alone by the working of the Spirit for our salvation to the glory of God alone. Again, what we learn from this text tonight is that we are humbly to trust in Christ Alone by the working of the Spirit for our salvation to the glory of God. We're going to consider three points in this text. First, we're going to consider the source of humble faith. Second, we're going to consider the power of humble faith. And lastly, we're going to consider the goal of humble faith. Source, power, and goal of humble faith. So let's now turn to the word in this text, consider the source of our humble faith, which is the Spirit of God. <clears throat> From the broader context of Mark, if we look at this text, we have not seen any mention of the Holy Spirit. But if we go and consider Mark's gospel as a whole, we can see that this is a crucial part of this text. If I were simply to read this passage to you and tell you, go and do likewise, I'd be moralizing. But Mark is no moralist. Mark wants us to ask deep questions about what is going on here. In particular, what is so unique about this woman? 
Why, when all other men and on the, the Christ's disciples themselves are hanging around Jesus, they don't have faith like this woman? Why do so many people see the miracles of Christ and yet turn away? The simple answer is, those people have not been baptized by the Holy Spirit. But this woman, she has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when I say baptized by the Holy Spirit, I'm using it the way Christ himself does. We're not talking about some second anointing in your Christian life, some second level tier Christian. We're talking about regeneration. We're talking about illumination, that you've been born again from on high to know who Jesus Christ is. If we look again at the beginning of this chapter 7 here, what we see is we have a bunch of religious elites, a bunch of Pharisees and scribes, who are trying to clean themselves externally. They have a man-made washing, and they're trying to perform it in their own strength. And the results of all this, no heart change. They try and try, and it produces nothing. Look with me at verses 4 through 8. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Interesting, the word for wash here is that the Greek word is baptizo. It's the same word that we get baptized from. And so we can read it. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they baptize. And there are many other such things which they have received and hold, like the baptizing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. And jump with me down to verse 6. And what's the result of this? Jesus answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Mark wants us to contrast what's going on with the Pharisees earlier, what's going on with this woman now. Before, we have a bunch of ceremonially clean Jews. Now we have a ceremonial unclean Gentile. But the difference is we see a great heart change in her, but no heart change in these disciples, in these Pharisees. Now what could produce this heart change except the mighty working of the Holy Spirit? We see... <clears throat> We see where else in Mark's gospel that the Spirit particularly does the work of illumination. When the Sadducees can't understand the resurrection from the Old Testament, Christ charges them not understanding the power of God, not understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to illuminate the scriptures. So part of the work of the Holy Spirit in Mark's understanding is to show people who Christ is, such as in chapter 3 when the Pharisees reject Christ's ability to cast out demons and attribute it to the prince of demons. And what Jesus says is, you haven't rejected me. What you really have rejected is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit's job is to show people who Jesus is, and the Pharisees are refusing that work. But what we see from this woman, this woman who is a Syrophoenician by birth, ceremonially unclean by birth, is that she is able to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not simply her, some master, but the Lord of the universe. And where could faith come except by this type of faith come from, except through the working of the Holy Spirit? We also see that this is the work of the Holy Spirit due to the strength of her faith. Throughout Mark's gospel, Christ again comes with words to people, inviting them into salvation, but they turn away. Just think about the rich young ruler. He gets told that he has entrance in the kingdom of God if he's willing to sell everything he has. But at such a weak, at such a small word, he's not willing to bear with it and turns away from Christ. But in this text, this woman here deals with something far more 
humiliating, something much harder, a pill much harder to swallow, and yet she sticks with Christ. Why? Because it's a faith worked by the Spirit. Just consider with me how insulting, in one sense, the words of Christ are to her. Look with me now at verse 27. Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. Many people in evangelicalism have no idea what they do with a text like this. Their understanding of Christ is the Christ of all love and no law. And then they get to this passage and they're like, what has Jesus done? That sure seems like an insult to her. And what they wind up doing to try to make Christ fit their own understanding is jump onto this word little. And in one sense, there is significance to this word little. What he's saying is that she's a household dog. Not some wild dog roaming around the Middle East, but no, she's a household dog living in the family. And they'll be like, look, Jesus actually called this woman part of the family. He's a household dog like Fifi, and you can see if she just will wait her turn, she'll get some breadcrumbs as well. Well, let me ask you. Imagine if I invited you over to my house for a meal, and you see the whole table set, and you're a good guest, and you ask, where should I sit down to eat? And I said, oh, don't worry. I put your plate next to the bowl next to Fifi. You get to eat on the floor with Fifi. Don't worry. Don't be insulted. We love Fifi. We take her on all our family vacations. We've got selfies, all sorts of Snapchats with her, and we get her groomed twice a week. She's like one part of the family. She's one of us. Would you eat on the floor with my dog? No. Why not? As much as we love Fifi, Fifi's a dog at the end of the day. And all of us, we are image bearers. There's a dignity about us that we would refrain from getting on all fours and eating our plate on the floor with a dog. So this text in no way is meant to, in one sense, be a, a soft word to her. No, this is a harsh word. He has, Jesus has called this woman a dog. And the only way that this is not an insult is if we understand the person speaking to her. If she's just speaking to another man, yeah, it's an insult. But if she's speaking to God Almighty, the creator, the ruler, the sustainer of the universe, the judge, the person whom she sins against every time she commits a sin, the person whom she has rebelled against, the person who, in fact, she's more like a dead dog before than a little dog that's alive, well, then actually to be called a dog in his sight is just the truth. And she, in one sense, accepts that by her confession. So we really should ask ourselves, before we start getting into how to have faith like this, where does the woman get such faith to endure such difficult trials? And the only answer that Mark puts through at the beginning of his gospel is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus, through the mighty work in the Spirit, has worked in her heart to illuminate the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. So I would ask you this night, have you, have you yourself experienced the mighty working of the Spirit of Christ in your life? Have you been born again that you might see not only simply the sinfulness of your sin, not only your failings before God, but have you seen the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ that no matter what word he might say to you, no matter what law or commandment he brings before you to condemn you, that you would humble yourself before him and seek his face. If you haven't, if you have not experienced the Spirit's work in your life to illuminate who Christ is, let me ask you, what keeps you from coming to Jesus Christ? What in your life would you hold on to so dearly that you would not throw it aside to come to Christ? 
Do you still trust in your own ability, like the Pharisees, trying to wash themselves, trying to cleanse themselves from all their sins, trying to externally cleanse the cup, but have no ability to change the heart? Are you still trusting your ability to do that? Do you still trust in your own wisdom, saying, I can't reconcile the fact that God wants me to respond in faith, to take action, to come to him, yet he's the one who has to move in my heart. Do the great doctrines of grace, are they something that you cannot grasp and you are too proud to humble yourself that God is far bigger, far more magnificent than you could possibly imagine? And because you're still wise in your own eyes, you refuse to come to Jesus Christ. What in your life would keep you from coming to the Savior? But for those who have experienced the work of Christ in your life, that you've been indeed brought from life to death, let me, my bad, from death to life, from dark to light, let me ask you, do you have a spirit of gratitude in your life for those spirits working in your heart? As Presbyterians and Reformed, we can be really critical. You can listen to a sermon, you can get down and have no idea what was said, but you can say ten things the preacher completely bombed on. And there's a place to be critical. If you can listen to a man preach for hours and talk nothing of Christ, or he's saying heresy, yeah, we need to be critical, and we can't stand for that. But is that really what should mark people who understand the amazing grace of Jesus Christ? Ought not gratitude, ought not a great thanksgiving for everything that God's done in our life, that though we were wretched, Christ loved us and set his affection on us while we were unlovely. And he turned us and made us his own children. As we confessed earlier, he's adopted us. Should we not walk around with a spirit of gratitude instead of a spirit of complaining over all the things that are wrong in this world? This week I did some returns at Home Depot. And the lady who was checking me out was telling me about her grandson, 11-year-old grandson, who's worried about money and how things are, and is anxious about the state of the world. And we just recently had our first kid, and I'm wondering, I hope my kid, when he's 10 years old, is not worried about where he's gonna get food and what's gonna happen in the world. And I'm like, what is up with this culture to cause people to be so anxious and depressed about what's going on? But I tell myself, if I am critical, if I just live such a critical life and tell my son everything that's wrong in the world day after day, this is why the economy's failing, son. There's a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing, and that's why the economy's failing. And this is why we have moral issues. And I just complain, complain, complain. My son is going to learn to be downcast and anxious and pessimistic about the entire world. What I want my son to see when I die is not that his father simply stood for the truth, but his father lived every day in light of the fact that he didn't get over the fact that God saved him, that no matter what else happened, that there was such a broken world, that of all the sinners in this world, Christ would choose his father and set his affection on his father. And every day his dad lived with such gratitude. That was the mark of his day. That would be the, the memory my son would have of me as one of gratitude for Christ's gracious work and bringing me from death to life. So we've looked here and we've seen the source of the Christian's saving faith, of humble faith. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we turn to consider the power of humble faith. Faith is something that everyone has. And faith is, <clears throat> and people have in one sense a faith in faith. 
Have you ever seen a bumper sticker that just says, believe? You're like, believe in what? And what can actually believing do? The truth of the matter is, believing can really do nothing. If you believe as hard as you want, and an asteroid crashes, crashes down in your house, you will not survive. The truth of the matter is, we know belief. Belief just in and of itself has saved no one. Why? Everyone dies. No one wants to die. But every single person has died. No amount of sheer faith in your will to live can keep you from all the tears of this world. But the thing that faith gets its power from is the object in which faith puts itself. I wouldn't put much faith in a five-year-old to drive a car, but I put a lot of faith in a NASCAR driver to get me from point A to point B. Why? Because he's got the power and ability to accomplish what he needs to get done. And when we think about our own souls, who is strong enough to redeem us from the curse of the law, to redeem us from our own fallen state, except God himself? And so this power of faith is not in faith itself, but the power of a humble faith comes from the object of faith. And in this text, Mark sets before us two proofs of the deity of Christ. And we should consider these proofs and be encouraged by how strong our Savior is to redeem us from our sins. The first proof of Christ's deity is his power to command demons. Have you ever wondered, who can actually command the demons? If we think about all the creatures in this world, we know humans can't. Humans were never given dominion over the demonic forces. And after the fall, humans are actually slaves to demons. There is in no way whatsoever you can command a demon to depart from someone else and they're going to listen to you. So if humans can't, what about angelic forces? Well, what we see from Scripture is that angels might wrestle with demons, but they don't have the authority to command them. So if they don't have the authority to command, who else? Satan. Satan's the prince and ruler of the demons, so he has in one sense authority to command the demons. But what does Christ say in chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel? This would be utter ruin to the kingdom of darkness. If Satan was against Satan, his kingdom wouldn't stand for long. So he's not going to command negative things against his own forces. So if humans and angels and Satan are not commanding demons, who else is left to have authority to command someone to leave another person and to be done instantaneously? Only God. Only God alone has that power, that authority to command demonic forces. And so when we see here in verse 29, when Christ says, And he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Mark is proving to us that Jesus is not just any being. Jesus is divine. He is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father, though distinct with him. Besides pressing Christ's divinity through the commanding of demons, Mark also presses Christ's deity in his omniscience. What we see here is that Jesus never meets this woman. There's all sorts of situations where people bring a sick person to Christ to heal him. Or Christ goes to someone to heal them. But in this situation, Jesus never sees this little girl. How is it possible for Jesus to heal them without having ever have, having any knowledge of who she is in person? If, I, if you were a nurse in a hospital and I said, oh, go make this patient better, your first question would be, which patient is it? Christ doesn't ask that question. Christ instantly knows who needs to be healed, and he can instantly heal her because he's omniscient. And the only person who can know everything is God himself. So Mark wants you to walk away knowing 
without a shadow of doubt that Jesus is not merely a man, but Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh. This should encourage Christians. Who is our Savior? He's not just some mystical force floating around. He's not just a great model to follow. He's not a wise politician. No, the person who is on our side is God himself. God is the only one who could atone for your sins. God is the only one who can persevere you through these dark days. Have you ever woken up in the morning and just in your heart felt heaviness for your own sin and wondered how in the world I can be justified before God? When I sin day after day and I continue to fall into the same sin, how do I have any right standing before God? Do you meditate on the incarnation in response to that? Why would my sin lead me to Christmas? Because at Christmas, Christ, the Jesus, was fully God and fully man. The greatest miracle ever to come. And we can grasp the fact that the man who walked around in Israel was God. And when we look to the cross, we realize on the cross, all our sins would be taken. For God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is capable of atoning for all our sins. So when we think about the deity of Christ, it should give the Christian much comfort. After considering the the power of our humble faith, lastly, we should consider the goal of our humble faith. As we've mentioned before, everyone in this world has faith in something. Everyone is trusting in someone or something to make this world a better place. The atheists, they're trusting evolution. They trust that somehow, that over time, things will just go and get better and better, and finally we'll have a utopia, and we'll just all live happy lives because we've evolved into some better society. The politician is pushing his political agenda. He's found the man for the job, and if he gets that man in office, this will be a better world. I don't need to worry. My life will be a whole lot better. And in one sense, Christians too, we believe that things are going to get better. We believe that through the work of Christ, there is a new creation coming. And we believe that in this new creation, things will be a whole lot better for you and me. But there's something far more significant to the Christian's faith than merely a better world. The great thing about Christian faith is it tends towards the glory of God. Have you ever wondered, as we pointed out earlier, faith is so weak and impotent. Why would God choose such a weak grace to save sinners by? If he could have ordained, he could have chosen love. He could have chosen obedience. He could have chosen repentance. He's chosen faith. Why would God choose such a weak grace to save sinners? He didn't choose it simply because he knew your own weakness, and your, own ability to, your own inability to keep the law. He chose it because his glory he will not give to another. When you stand before Christ in the great day, you'll have nothing to boast in of yourself. The only thing you'll have to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. When you realize that the point of our faith is not to magnify ourselves, but the point of our faith is to magnify our great God, our merciful God, that should shape the way we think about the Christian life. Look at the way that this woman argues with Jesus. Look with me now at verse 27. But Jesus said to her, oh, my bad. Look at verse 28. 
And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. This woman is not banking her salvation on her own unworthiness. This woman's not trying to play reverse psychology with God, being like, Lord, accept me into your kingdom. Have mercy on me because I am so vile and useless. And God's like, I know. I know you're useless. Don't try to fool me with that. The point of her argument is not in the fact that she considers herself a dog. But the point of her argument is in the infinite worth of the grace of God. Look at that little word. Crumbs. All she wants from Christ is crumbs of grace. When I was a little kid, I had a little tiny coin jar. And every time I brushed my teeth, my parents would give me either a nickel or dime, depending on this morning or evening. And once that jar was filled up with nickels and dimes, I'd have about $10 and I'd go to the toy store and buy a toy. But imagine instead of my parents giving me nickels and dimes, they gave me diamonds. And every time I brushed my teeth, they'd just stick a dime in my little coin jar. I'd brush my teeth for about two weeks, and I'd have enough money to buy all the toys my little eight-year-old heart could desire. Why? Because even though a diamond is small and tiny, it has such great value and worth to it. We go to the parking lot, and you find nickels and dimes all over the place. Why? Because you can't buy anything with a nickel or a dime. But with a diamond, you can buy tons of stuff because they're rare and valuable. And so when this woman here only wants crumbs of grace from Jesus Christ, do you see what she's done? She's ascribed infinite glory, infinite value, infinite majesty and worth to her Savior Jesus Christ. That when she looks to what he can do, the smallest drop of her Savior's blood can fix any and all issues that she would ever have in this life. She's banking on the glory of God to be her salvation. And that's how our faith should be in this world. Yes, we're trusting that Christ will save us individually. We're trusting that we won't have to go to hell. We're going to a new creation. But do we understand that the point of our faith is to magnify our Savior? So let me ask you, Do you spend more time thinking about your own sinfulness than about who Jesus Christ is and how beautiful and excellent he is? Does your heart get so wrapped up in your own failings, in your own sin, in your own vileness and unworthiness that you forget the glory of the one who saved you and how beautiful and excellent he is? The ability to see your brokenness, the only thing that means is you're a realist. If you can look at your life and realize, I'm not really what I should be, the unbeliever can see that too. And if you despair over your brokenness, it just means you're a pessimist. But if you can see the sinfulness of your sin, if you can see that your sin is an offense against God, then you can look to Christ and you can see his mercy and you can see the invitation that he has to sinners such as yourself, and your heart rejoice in that. You've a mark of the Spirit in your life, but the Spirit has caused you to see not just simply a broken world, but has caused you to see that Jesus is the Son of God, the Eternal One, come in the flesh. 
And that should be what our Christian life is about. So how can we learn to think more on the Savior? Talk to one another about the Savior. When you get together, don't simply talk about how the economy is going to fail. Yeah, it might. You're no prophet. I'm no son of a prophet. The Lord is gracious. It might not fail. But it wouldn't be so much better for Christian brothers and sisters to get together and tell them about some new thing that they have learned about their amazing God. Can't find someone to talk to? Pick up a book. It's a conversation with someone. Go read a great Puritan classic about the glories of Jesus Christ and all the ways that he has managed to save you. I just finished reading a book by John Owen called Christologia, and he's talking about how Christ's current mediatorial office works for his own glory. And he was talking about how it works for the, the joy of Old Testament saints who lived under such clouds of darkness, who had no idea, who did not have the details that we have now. But now as they're in heaven worshiping Christ, they have such an excellent picture of who their Savior is. We need to think about Christ in such ways, with such details. We need to know who our Savior is and have our hearts taken up with Him. That's the goal of Christian faith. Not to be Debbie Downers, but to be absorbed with our Savior. If we think back to our earlier example about Alexander Hamilton, in one sense his confession of his sin was for a very noble cause. He had worked out a financial plan for the United States, and he thought that his financial plan was the best thing for this fledgling nation. But his political opponents had accused him of stealing from the government, and so he had to, to not simply save his own skin, but to save what he believed what would be good for this nation. He had to humble himself and expose all his sin. In the same way, the Christian, our confession of faith, is meant to glorify God. Augustine talked about the reason he would recount his sins is that he might know more, that he might be able to ascribe more glory to God. So what we've seen from Mark's text is that we are humbly to believe in Christ alone by the working of the Spirit for our salvation to the glory of God. So let me ask you in closing, have you humbly looked to Christ to work in you by His Spirit? Are you humbly trusting in Christ alone as the power of your salvation? And are you humbly looking to Christ to that great end of the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God the Son, and to the glory of God the Spirit. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.